Well, good afternoon. It's a pleasure and privilege to be back with you again today and uh, looking forward to continuing our study in the book of Zechariah. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Zechariah chapter 1 this afternoon, Zechariah chapter 1. And we're entering into the uh, murky waters, I might say, of the night visions that Zechariah has. So there are eight night visions, and we're going to get into some of the details this afternoon of what those look like and what those entail. And so uh, we'll be studying them together, Lord willing, over the coming weeks. And uh, this afternoon, we will be in the first vision, so I'm looking forward to this together. Uh, Zechariah is one of my favorite books. I think I've mentioned this before. It's also a bit of an interpretive challenge at times. Uh, I, I think often of uh, Martin Luther, the famous reformer who wrote two commentaries on the book of Zechariah, and in the second one, he abruptly broke off about halfway through, and he said, as to the rest, I don't really understand what the prophet is saying. So it can be a bit challenging to understand him. At the same time, I think he has a lot of wonderful and profound truth for us to encourage us as we, like them, face a world that is growing uh, more hostile to the truths of God. And so how do we stand fast how are we encouraged and strengthened as we resist the world and resist uh, those who would seek to discourage us from what God is doing? God is at work, and we can rejoice in that, and we're going to see that this morning or this afternoon in the book of Zechariah. So let me read through the passage. Uh, I'll lead us in prayer, and then we'll kind of uh, look at some introductory things and then get into the verses and go through them together. So beginning of verse 7, Zechariah 1, verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, as follows. I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees which were in the ravine, with red sorrel and white horses behind him. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled or literally walked back and forth on the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which you have been indignant these 70 years? The Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words, comforting words. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations who are at ease for while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Again, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we consider this passage together this afternoon. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to meet together. We ask for your blessing now. Help us to understand. Give us ready minds and hearts to apply and live out this truth. I pray that it would encourage us and strengthen us so that we might glorify your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
one of the most persistent human aspirations has been to achieve world peace. If you spend much time consuming the news, you know that we live in a world with a lot of conflict. And there are many who would seek out ways to establish lasting peace in this world in which we live. And yet, so often, these attempts to establish peace really end up just being futile endeavors. One example that I think of uh, that happened historically is an organization that was formed after the conclusion of World War I. Now, World War I was a bit of time ago, about 100 years ago, and so not many of us have a personal experience having gone through that, but at the time, that was the worst war that had ever really erupted in the world to that time. It's estimated there were around 40 million casualties between the wounded and dead uh, as part of that war. And so at the end of it, many were determined, how can we make sure this never happens again, that we never have a, a war that engulfs the whole world in a similar way? And so they came up with an idea, what if we create this body that can kind of talk and debate, and before war starts, they can kind of hash out their differences, and maybe this will make the difference. And so they started a body called the League of Nations. One of the proponents of it was the U.S. president at the time, Woodrow Wilson. But right from the gate, the League of Nations was doomed to fail. One of the reasons was when Woodrow Wilson came back to the U.S., he tried to convince people that the U.S. should join. But when it actually came up for a vote in the Senate, they voted it down by nearly a two-to-one margin. The Americans just didn't really want to get entangled in this. But more than that, the League of Nations really had no way of enforcing peace. They had no standing army. The first test was the Soviet Union invaded Persia on the Caspian Sea, and Persia, who was a member of the League, appealed for help, and the League did nothing. Their, their thought was, well, if we tell the Soviet Union to withdraw and they ignore us, that will make us look bad, but in the end, they ended up doing nothing, and that just told everybody they really didn't have any way of enforcing peace. And as the 1930s uh, went forward, communism, fascism were on the rise, and nation after nation was invading another nation, and the League really did nothing about it. Uh, the Japanese invaded Manchuria in 1932, Mussolini, Ethiopia in 1935, and finally Hitler came to power in 1938. And during that time, the League did nothing. Finally, they were liquidated at the end of World War II, and all their assets were divvied out, and they officially dissolved in 1947. What began as a hope to bring lasting peace and, above all else, to avoid another world war, spectacularly failed. They were not able to achieve any kind of lasting peace. They really just left a legacy of ineffectiveness. Now, when we turn to Scripture we realize that all of our human efforts to achieve peace really are, in a sense, misguided and broken and thwarted efforts because we as sinners can't achieve lasting peace. Only one being, only one person can, and that is God. And my message this morning, my uh, idea, if you will, is this, that only God can bring lasting peace. Only God can bring lasting peace. There are a lot of people that look for ways to find peace, whether it's in their family, at the workplace, uh, in their 
school or other communities, there may be conflict and people are looking, how can I achieve some measure of peace, some measure of tranquility? And we often come up with ways of trying to achieve that. But in the end, we realize that we just can't simply wish for peace and make it happen. We are powerless to do so. Only God can bring lasting peace. So my message this afternoon is to put our hope in the God who can bring lasting peace and will bring lasting peace to a violent, broken world. We get a glimpse in this passage of God's intention to bring peace. And he's going to bring peace so that ultimately the Messiah can bring his kingdom into the world and so that he can reign on David's throne for a thousand years and bring peace to a broken world. Now, what I want to try to do as we think about this first vision is just sort of establish the context a little bit uh, for what we're going to see as we go forward in these visions. Okay, so this is working, I think. All right, awesome. All right, so a couple things I just want to bring out to help us think through these visions. There are eight visions, all right? So this is a bit more of the heavy teaching part, and I'll get more to the application as we move forward. What are these visions, and is there anything that unites them? You may have read the book of Zechariah in the past and wondered, what are all these ideas and symbols and metaphors that are happening? We see, for instance, here horses. Uh, We'll see a man with a measuring line. We're going to see a flying scroll that looks like it's about the size of a billboard that's flying through the land. We see a woman in a basket. It's very confusing at times. And so we want to see, is there a unified structure, is there a unified thread that unites these visions together? And I would say, yes, there is, and I want to go through some of the things that unite these visions together, and then we're going to land here in this first vision and spend our time looking at the text in more detail. So, verse 7 tells us this is the 24th day of the 11th month. I'm going to talk more about the historical context in a minute. But what this suggests is that all the visions take place on the same night. This is February, as it says here, February 15th, 519 B.C. Now, last time I spoke several weeks ago, I had mentioned that Zechariah and Haggai sort of overlap in terms of their ministries. And so Haggai begins in 520 with his prophetic ministry, and Zechariah's first message, which we looked at last time in chapter 1, verse 1 to 6, also happens in this same year. And now the night visions happen about three to four months later in the month of February, February 15th, 519 BC. So they're about a year from when Haggai started. They're trying to rebuild the temple because that's what Haggai called them to do, but it's going to be another four years before the temple is completed. So Zechariah comes with Uh, The Lord approaches him with a series of visions to comfort the people while they're building the temple to remind them that God is sovereign and that they need to keep working at what he's called them to do. So these visions all happen on the same night. And then secondly, they follow a similar sequence. And we'll see this as we work through it. But there are about five things that happen in each of these vision sequences. The first is there's an introduction. We see this in verse 8 of this vision, I saw at night. If you cast your eyes down to verse 18, you see the introduction of the next vision, I lifted up my eyes and looked. 
So every time there's a vision, Zechariah says something about lifting his eyes or looking or seeing. That's how we know that we're on to the next vision. The second thing is that a scene is often reported. He tells us what he sees. And I'll say this, usually the first thing he sees is the most important element. So we want to pay attention, particularly here in verse 8, to this man who's riding a red horse. And I'll get to him more in a minute, but he's the main character in this first vision. And I'm going to make a case that he's actually the main character in each of the visions, and that this is actually a a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ himself. So I'll show how that's the case in a minute. So he reports the scene, and then we have this character who I would call the interpreting angel, or an angel who comes and often explains what's going on and gives more information. So sometimes this angel is more prominent than at other times, but typically he's explaining something. And uh, the reason this is significant is This is a certain kind of literature that's intended to encourage suffering people with the certainty of God's work in the world. This this book has a lot of affinities with the books of Daniel, with the book of Revelation, and with the end of Ezekiel. And in all those cases, an angel will often come to the prophet and explain what he's seen. And so we want to pay attention to what the angel says as the angel explains it. Uh, Then we may... Uh, see a few other things that happen, and finally it ends with the Lord himself explaining uh, the, the particular vision, and we have that here. The Lord explains what's going on, uh, and so that's where it concludes. All right, now I want to also suggest, and this is uh, a lot of information, but let me try to explain what this means, that all eight visions are actually unified in terms of their overall structure. If you can see that, and uh, it looks like it's a little cut off, so I apologize. It's great in the back if you turn around and look, but not so much here. Uh, that's okay. We'll, we'll uh, deal with that as we go. So there are eight visions, but what's really important is the fact that the middle visions are unified, and they're really the centerpiece of what's going on. So let me explain it this way. The first vision... All right. Appreciate it. All right. Never disrespect the church media people because they are <laughs> integral to what you do. It's, uh, it's very important. All right, so uh, what I want to suggest here, and this is, again, a lot of information, but if you notice, there's some symmetry here. There's a fancy term for this. It's called a chiasm, but what it basically means is it's a staircase parallelism. What this means is the first and the last ones are parallel, the second and seventh, third and sixth, and fourth and fifth. Notice how that plays out. In the first one, we're looking at a global situation, the four horsemen, and the the objective there is to establish peace and stability. In the last vision, we have four chariots that corresponds to the first one, and it's also dealing with global peace and stability. The second and seventh have to do with international relationships between Israel and the nations, and in these cases... They're dealing, the, the God is dealing with someone, some entity that threatens his people, whether it's sin or whether it's enmity, other things. And so the second and the seventh have to do with establishing peace and security for the nation. The third and the sixth have to do with preparing the nation, the land for God's dwelling. And the third, uh, the vision has to do with expanding the city so that God can dwell in it. 
and in the sixth that has to do with purifying the people so that God can dwell with a sinful people. And that then brings us to the middle. The middle has to do with leadership of the nation, and that's why it's so crucial, so critical that the leaders be qualified. There are two leaders we'll encounter as we work through these visions. One is the high priest, Joshua, and the other is the governor, Zerubbabel. Both of these men anticipate the coming Messiah in some aspect of his future ministry. Joshua tends to emphasize the priestly components. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ will come as a king and a priest. The book of Hebrews tells us he's a priest and king after the order of Melchizedek. And so both these leaders uh, have some aspect of anticipating the future Messiah. In the case of Joshua, he needs to be purified so he's a fit and qualified leader as the priest, and Zerubbabel needs to be empowered so he's strengthened and helped so that he can govern effectively and do what the Lord requires of him. All right, and then uh, the last couple of things about these eight visions, and then we'll dive into the first one. Uh, Number four, uh, we notice that there are eight visions, and the number eight is significant here. It's Uh, A sense of seven plus one, and the number seven is really important in the Bible. Uh, You know, some people probably overemphasize numbers and come up with sort of like these uh, symbolic meanings, but nonetheless, it is important. Uh, If we look at creation, it's seven days, there are seven days in a week, and the number seven signifies completion, perfection, and fulfillment. And when you add one to that, it gives it an extra thrust, if you will, of divine certainty. What this means is God is certainly going to accomplish his work, this is his work, and there's no margin for doubt that he will accomplish what he sets out to do. There's a certainty to these visions. The main themes, number five there, are temple and kingdom, and we'll see these coming up in each of the visions. Zechariah is concerned that they build the temple and that that temple is established so God can dwell with his people. And then kingdom, that the right king comes, the coming Messiah, to establish his kingdom. And then finally, uh, all the visions point to a future fulfillment. As Zechariah is prophesying, he's looking forward to the coming of Christ. And we will see as we go through these visions that this prophetic truth is still yet to be accomplished. Jesus is going to accomplish this in his second coming when he comes back to earth and establishes his kingdom, defeats his enemies, and reigns on the throne of his father David for a thousand years. The book of Revelation tells us about this thousand year reign at the uh, end of the book, and so we know that Jesus will come, he will reign from Jerusalem, and that this is a guaranteed outcome of world history because the Lord tells us in these visions he is about to do these things. His return is imminent, and we look forward to that. And so as we work through these visions, we want to see how Jesus, the coming Messiah, is manifest and how we see profound truth about his future reign. All right, everybody still with me? Understood and good to go? Nobody's falling off the wagon, so to speak. All right, so let's dive in then, and we're going to look at the first uh, verse, and I have just four points that we'll work through. It's pretty simple. The first point is this, God moves at just the right time. God moves at just the right time. Notice verse 7, we have a date formula, the 24th day of the 11th month in the second year of Darius, 
the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, and he gives again his genealogy, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. God works at just the right time. So this happens on February 15th, 519 B.C. Now, why is this significant? Well, Zechariah here tells us it's the 24th day. And if our antennas are up a little bit, we may have noticed if we had been reading straight through the minor prophets that that day is also a significant day for Haggai, the prophet with whom Zechariah overlaps. In fact, if you go back to Haggai, if you would just turn there, or you can listen as I read, but back in Haggai chapter 1, so the book right before Zechariah in Haggai chapter 1, in verse 12, it tells us something significant that happens. It says, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence or feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the, of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius, the king. All right, so what we see here, if we turn back to Zechariah chapter 1, we see that Zechariah is actually ministering on the fifth month anniversary of this revival that broke out during Haggai's ministry. Now, if you read all the Old Testament and the Lord raised up a lot of prophets, you see a lot of prophets through the course of Israel's history, but it's fairly rare that when a prophet comes on the scene and gives a message that the people actually respond favorably. We could probably count on one hand the number of times that the people actually turn from their sin, are, are awakened, if you will, spiritually to obey what the prophet is saying. I think often of poor Jeremiah, who's told right from the outset, you're going to proclaim the truth of God, but no one will listen to you. In fact, they'll reject you. You're going to experience hardship. It's going to be really, for all practical purposes, a difficult, painful ministry. And yet here, Haggai comes to the people and they immediately respond and the Lord stirs up their spirit. And so Zechariah now is receiving a vision on the fifth month anniversary of that revival. And the Lord is saying, because the people are responding, let me give you a preview of how great it will be when the Messiah comes and when he establishes his kingdom. They may be discouraged. They may think we're working really hard with meager results. So let me pull back the curtain and show how great it's going to be when the Messiah comes. And so these night visions are a, a trailer or a peek sneak, if you, a sneak peek, if you will, of the coming of the Messiah and the coming of his kingdom. And it's meant to encourage the people as they labor on. One of my heroes in the faith is an American theologian who ministered in uh, the 18th century, a man named Jonathan Edwards. And he preached in a little town of Northampton, Massachusetts. And the Lord blessed his ministry. He preached during a time that church historians call the Great Awakening. 
And Jonathan Edwards wrote a tract about what was happening in his church, and the title is kind of long because they tended to have long titles back in that day, but he called it a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God in the conversion of many hundred souls in Northampton and its neighboring towns and villages. That's a lengthy title, but basically what he's saying is this is a true story about God's surprising work. Now, what did he mean by that? Why did he say it was surprising? Well, what, essentially what he was saying is we've been working and, and laboring and preaching for many years, and it seemed like nothing was happening. And I think in many uh, parts of the world throughout church history, there have been many times where labors are made, and it seems like the fruit is very small. And as Jonathan and others were preaching, the Lord was pleased to do a great work. And he details how it started among the young people. The young people got convicted over their sin because they realized that they were being very flippant about their walk with God. And uh, as it happened, a, a young person died suddenly in the town. And all the young people realized that eternity was really just a step away. And they began to, to seek, how can we know the true God? And many of them were saved. And Jonathan, said it, Jonathan Edwards said it was a surprising work. It wasn't that they manufactured it. God did the work. And so I think there's a lesson here. As Zechariah's visions occur on the same night, the lesson is this, that we just need to be faithful and allow God to bring results from our labors. We can't make people turn and, and convert to Christianity or respond to the gospel, but if we are faithful, God will bring results. God will bring results in his time and in his way. And so the vision here happens uh, on the heels of Haggai's ministry, and it's an encouragement to Zechariah. But there's one other reason that the date is significant, and this is a little more obscure. We might not get it just from uh, reading this text, so let me try to explain it. Notice it here, it's the 11th month. Now, you may have picked up that it says the 11th month, but it's actually in February. How does that correspond? Well, remember that in ancient Israel, their calendar actually started in the spring. So New Year was in the springtime, and that's why it's near the end of the year for them. Now, why would that have been significant? Because in the ancient world, most cultures, most nations usually had a special dedicatory service and ceremony at the temple each New Year. So this was kind of a custom around the ancient world and other nations that the king would usually lead his people in a dedication ceremony at the temple. And if you're an ancient Israelite in this situation, think about being in their shoes for a moment, that here they are about to experience the New Year again, and yet the temple still lies in ruins. I was thinking of an example, it might be something like having a Christmas with no presents, or having a 4th of July with no picnic and no fireworks. They're tempted, I think, to perhaps be discouraged because the New Year's would be a time to dedicate the temple, and yet it still languishes. And so, again, the Lord says to Zechariah, let me pull back the curtain, let me show you a preview of the great things God is going to do and that will encourage you to be faithful in your work. All right, so then we come to verse 8. And the slide is, I might be hitting the wrong button. Okay, there we go. All right, so 
Uh, you see a picture of a horse. So we're going to talk about horses this morning because this is the essence of this first vision. Uh, I don't know if anyone here has experience with horses. I don't have a lot of experience, so I've done a lot of research uh, and, and come to some conclusions. So uh, you'll have to help me out if I uh, get anything wrong as we work through this. All right, so notice verse 8. This brings us to my second point, which is this. God brings just the right resources. Uh, first point, God works at just the right moment, and now he brings just the right resources. Notice verse 8, I saw at night, behold, a man was riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees, which were in the ravine, with red, sorrel, or dappled, and white horses behind him. Then I said, my Lord, what are these? And this interpreting angel who was speaking with me said, I will show you what these are. All right, there's a lot packed in these two verses, so these are really important to understand as we work through it, and I'm going to make a case here that this man riding the red horse is in fact Jesus himself before he came into the world as a man, and I'll tell you why I think that's the case in a moment. All right, so it begins here with Zechariah looking and seeing this. There's some question, is Zechariah asleep when this happens, or is he awake? I I think he's awake because he says he, he sees it, and, and it, he watches it take place, but it happens at night. Now, why, why do these visions happen at night? Why doesn't Zechariah see this in the middle of the day? Well, I, I don't really know other than sometimes the night is associated with a time of, of difficulty and distress. I think of the Psalms. The Psalms often talk about night as a time of waiting and sorrow. Uh, Psalm 30, verse 5 says, Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And Psalm 46, verse 5 says, God will help when morning dawns. There's a saying that uh, you may hear from time to time, it's darkest right before dawn. And so it's nighttime when Zechariah sees this, and he sees a man riding a red horse, or uh, I tend to call this a chestnut horse, and I'll talk a little bit more about this. Behind him are a group of at least three horses, so together they make a group of four What are these horses doing? They're likely on a patrol. Think of a cavalry unit uh, in older forms of warfare, say during the Civil War other times, they would have mounted soldiers who would do scouting and raids. And that seems to be the idea here. These are uh, troops that are mounted on horses. They're riding them to patrol and to scout and to uh, do some reconnaissance of what's going on in the area. Now, what seems to be very important here in this imagery is the fact that the horses have colors. They are red. The New American Standard says sorrel. You may have a translation that says dappled and white. Now, what do these colors mean? I have to sort of give a caveat that when we're interpreting colors from the ancient world to today, it's notoriously difficult because we live in a very visually oriented Uh, age, right? We have the internet, we have television, so we're used to seeing very fine distinctions in color. But in the ancient world, if you can imagine, uh, they really didn't have ways to create all the vibrant colors that we have. We can go down to Home Depot or Lowe's and get paint in almost any conceivable color you could imagine, but it was very difficult to make colors in the ancient world. And so this word for red can denote anything in the Old Testament from blood, which is crimson, to uh, wine, which would be more burgundy, purplish, 
to something that's amber or something that's even brownish. And so it's, it's a red horse, but it's probably like a reddish brown horse. So the man riding this first horse, is, it's, we could think of it as chestnut or reddish brown. And he seems to be the leader. Notice in verse 8, this is the first thing that Zechariah sees. He sees him riding a red horse, and the other horses are behind him. In other words, he's front and center, and the other mounted horses are behind him. Now, what is the significance here of the fact that it's a red horse? Well, usually the color red in the Bible symbolizes judgment and war. We went to the book of Revelation in chapter 6, verse 4. We see a red horse there. It says this in Revelation 6, 4, another horse went out, a fiery red one, and its horseman was empowered to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another, and a large sword was given to him. So typically, red horses are connected to warfare and to judgment and to the shedding of blood in the Old Testament. Now, that's the red horse. Notice there's a, a mixed horse and then a white horse. I'm going to jump forward to the white horse. What does a white horse symbolize? Usually in the Bible, the white horse symbolizes triumph, glory, and victory. Again, in Revelation chapter 6, it describes this. There was a white horse. The horseman on it had a bow. A crown was given to him, and he went out as a victor to conquer. So we have three colors here. Red symbolizing judgment and warfare. White symbolizing victory and triumph. What about the sorrel or the mixed one? The way that I imagine this is the mixed horse may be a, a, a mixture of red and white, and it sort of symbolizes this wrath and mercy together, that both judgment and salvation are happening as these horses go forward. All right, so that's a quick overview of what the horses are doing. I want to focus now for a moment on this particular man who's riding. I want to say a few things about him. Notice verse 8, he's riding on the horse... And then notice in the next clause, the next part of the verse, he's standing among the myrtle trees. Notice verse 10, the man who's standing among the myrtle trees. And then notice verse 11, they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. Now this is again a little confusing, but let me try to put together what I think is happening here. Some interpreters suggest you have two different characters here. You have a man... And then you have the angel of the Lord. But I would suggest that between verse 10 and verse 11, what we have here rather is an identification of the man as the angel of the Lord. There's no other character introduced. And the other horsemen are answering to him, saying in verse 11, we've patrolled the earth and behold, the earth is peaceful and quiet. What I think is actually happening here is that the man is, in fact, himself the angel of the Lord. Now, often in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord can appear as a human. Think of Abraham when he receives a visit from three angels and they appear to him as humans, and he invites them in for a meal. And there are other times uh, the angel appears to Samson's parents and they have a conversation with him and he appears as a human. Now, I could do a whole message on this, but let me just briefly say, 
who is the angel of the Lord? I would argue the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is Jesus in his pre-incarnate glorious state, meaning the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, a couple of things just quickly. The, often the angel of the Lord speaks as the Lord himself. The angel speaks as if he were God because he is God. The angel of the Lord receives worship as if he were God, Samson's parents being an example. When people see the angel, they often say, I have seen God. Jacob wrestled with the angel and he said, I have seen God face to face. And then after Jesus comes into the world, the angel of the Lord never appears again. And so cumulatively, these factors suggest that in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is actually the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus himself before he comes into the world. And he, in the Old Testament, is often associated particularly with the suffering of God's people. With the suffering of God's people. In Isaiah 63, it says, The angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. In their affliction, he was afflicted. The angel suffered with God's people and redeemed them. And in the Exodus account of Exodus 14, it says, The angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved and stood behind them. And so the angel was protecting them, the angel was helping them, the angel was aiding them in their journeys. Now, if this is the case, if this is the case that uh, this man is the angel of the Lord, what becomes really significant, if I can jump ahead to verse 12, is that the angel says, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and for the cities of Judah? What I want to suggest this afternoon is that this angel, the pre-incarnate Jesus is interceding already for his people. If you think about the Gospel of Matthew, you may remember the passage in Matthew 23 where Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and yet you were unwilling. What I want to suggest is Zechariah, I think, tells us that when Jesus makes that statement, he's not just saying that during his public ministry, he's wanted to gather Jerusalem, but even in the Old Testament, he was interceding for his people, asking God to show compassion and mercy on them. And the Lord Jesus Christ, even today, even in this moment, is interceding for us. If we are true believers who placed our faith in Jesus, the book of Hebrews says he is able to save forever those who draw near since he always lives to make intercession for them. Isn't that a comforting thought that even at this moment Jesus is praying for us? He's interceding. And so he was interceding for them and he will do this for us as well. All right, and then we're going to see a few other things about this vision and then uh, move to our application to tie it together. All right, the man is standing among myrtle trees near a ravine, verse 8 tells us. What are myrtle trees? 
Myrtle trees, I don't know if you've ever seen one, uh, they're a very dark green shrub-like tree that have fragrant flowers and berries that are edible. You can uh, eat them and it's a very pretty and uh, aromatic kind of tree that grows in Israel. And typically this tree is associated with the Messiah and with his kingdom. Uh, in the Old Testament, the word for this is Hadassah, which is the same word that Esther has for her Hebrew name. And this tree came to be associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, as the Lord leads, as we get further into the book, uh, if we have an opportunity to finish the book, chapter 14 is all about the Feast of Tabernacles that's going to happen during the Millennial Kingdom in the future. And so, in a sense, Zechariah starts and ends with references to the Feast of Tabernacles by pinpointing on this particular tree, the myrtle tree. The myrtle tree is associated with the Messiah and his kingdom. But notice it's next to a ravine. This word literally is a deep. It's, it's situated next to a deep, steep valley. What is this signifying? I would argue that the imagery here suggests that this is a picture of Israel in the future kingdom who has just emerged from the abyss, from the deep. Typically, this word is associated with the grave or with the underworld, and it's a metaphor for death. To pass through the deep uh, or the valley of the shadow of death is metaphorically to emerge from death back to life. And this is a constant strain in the Old Testament uh, where the Lord says of his people, I will bring them back, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea in Psalm 68. Uh, Psalm 69 says, let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. What I think this suggests is that Israel, against all odds in the last days, will still be flourishing even though they've come from a deep valley that symbolizes, in a way, their destruction and death, God is still going to keep the nation alive and going to bring them into the kingdom. And we'll see this as it unfolds. Now, verse 9, he asks specifically, what do these things mean? What's going on here? And uh, again, as I mentioned earlier, whenever there's an interpreting angel, this suggests that it's apocalyptic literature. Let me just say a word about this. What that means is it's usually given to people who are suffering with a preview of the great things God is going to do to encourage them. And so that's the case here. God's going to do wonderful things to encourage them. All right, verse 10, my third point. God brings just the right results. God brings just the right results. So there's the man in verse 10 standing among the myrtle trees, and he talks about the horses. He says they've uh, gone to walk back and forth on the earth. And then verse 11 says, uh, they answered the angel of the Lord, and they said, we've walked back and forth, we're patrolled the earth, and behold, it is quiet and at ease. All right, now what does this mean? Well, to walk back and forth in the Bible usually means to express your ownership or your prerogative over a piece of land. Think in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, God tells Abraham, walk back and forth in the land because I am going to give all this land to you. And then Satan in the book of Job tells the Lord, I've come from walking back and forth upon the earth. In the New Testament, 
the Apostle Peter tells us that Satan walks back and forth seeking whom he may devour. So what this signifies here is that the horses, God's agents, God's warriors, have walked back and forth, and they have divine prerogative over the land. They've ensured that the stage is set for God's work. They're neutralizing the enemies. They're preparing the way. They've brought peace and security to the nation so that God can do his work. So notice uh, verse 12 then tells us in response to that what the angel does. The angel says, O Lord, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which you have been angry or indignant these 70 years? Now, what is the angel saying here? The angel is essentially saying it's been 70 years that God's people, the nation Israel, has been experiencing God's judgment. Will you now show compassion to them? Will you now show grace toward them? Now, what are these 70 years? Well, they're These visions happen in 519 B.C., as I said, and if you went 70 years earlier to around 586 B.C. when Babylon came, they destroyed the temple. So for 70 years, there's been no temple. The people have been suffering and languishing, and so the angel steps up and he says, Lord, have compassion. Have grace and compassion on your people. Uh, May they uh, be restored. And so what happens? What happens? It says, the Lord answered the angel with gracious words and with comforting words. And this brings us then to the last point, which is this. God works for just the right reasons. God works for just the right reasons, his glory and our good. And so he speaks, and then the angel, verse 14, relays, I think, what the Lord said in these gracious and comforting words. So what did the Lord say? Well, notice verse 14. The first thing he says is, I am jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. Now, what does this mean? This means God is passionate for his people. Jealousy here is not a negative emotion in God. It's a positive one, and you really could translate it passionate. He's he's zealous for his people. He's emotionally engaged He wants to restore his people. He's passionate for them. But verse 15 tells us he's angry with the other nations. What's going on here? Well, basically what he's saying is, I'm passionate for my people, but the nations tried to destroy them. The nations tried to uh, get rid of Israel and destroy the nation. And so now I'm acting to intervene. And notice verse 16 says, I'm going to return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it. This is a key verse because this tells us what the rest of the visions are about. God's coming to dwell in the the world, on the earth, and he's going to establish his temple, and he's going to bring his presence into the city of Jerusalem. And verse 17 says, Prosperity will overflow, and God tells them to comfort Zion Uh, Because God is again at work and he is going to choose Jerusalem. This is a magnificent plan that God has to bring peace, prosperity, and wellness to his people in the face of great opposition. The nations want to wipe Israel off the map, but God is coming to restore his presence and he is going to bring lasting peace. I want to end with an illustration and then make a few points of application and I'll be done. 
One of my heroes as I study the book of Zechariah is a particular commentator by the name of David Barron. David Barron was a Jewish scholar in Russia being trained to be a rabbi in the 19th century. And his story is pretty remarkable. One day he met a Jewish Christian and he was, uh, he was amazed by the fact that this Jewish person had actually believed in Jesus as Messiah. In his mind, this person was a complete apostate. The Talmud said, for instance, that Jesus was the greatest sinner of Israel. And here he met this Jewish Christian. This Jewish Christian seemed so joyful and content. And he thought, what secret does this man have? How can he be so joyful when he's a religious apostate? And so Barron was encouraged by this man to read the New Testament for himself and, and discover who Jesus was. And so Barron said, all right, I'm, I'll, I'll do that. He began to study the New Testament. And as he read the words of Jesus, he was, he, in his own words, literally blown away by what Jesus said. He read the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, no one ever spoke like this man speaks. He was amazed at what happened. And finally, after a year of studying the New Testament, one night he dropped on his knees and he said, uh, if you can only save me through faith in Jesus, please give me the faith to believe in Jesus. And he was converted. The Lord saved him. He became a, a, a missionary and a very effective minister of the gospel. He established a mission in London whereby he would evangelize Jewish people who lived in England. And he wrote a commentary on the book of Zechariah, and it's uh, one of my favorite commentaries on the book. And he says this about this passage. He said, these words which Zechariah is commanded to cry out are a summary of God's permanent and irrevocable good words with reference to Israel's future, and they will be assuredly fulfilled. And I would agree with Barron when he says that God still has a plan to bring good to the people of Israel and ultimately to us who believe in Jesus as we participate in that kingdom as well. So let, us, let me encourage us this morning. We may feel like the ancient Israelites did, that we're working really hard with meager results. We may wonder, is the Lord really working in our day? Where, where is his blessing? Is it worth it to keep striving for the Lord? You may feel like you're standing on the precipice of a ravine as well. That there's uh, a deep behind you that's threatening to engulf you. You may be enduring a dark night of the soul. And I would encourage you today to look up as Zechariah did. Look up to God. Look to Jesus, the coming king, who even in the Old Testament is interceding and now in the New Testament is interceding. And my uh, closing encouragement to us as we think about this is that only God can bring lasting peace. Only God can bring lasting peace. He will certainly accomplish his plan. He will bring redemption. He will accomplish what he intends to do. You can trust in him today. You can put your hope in him. Whatever you're going through, rest on his promises, rest on his words. Only God can bring lasting peace. Let us put our hope today in him alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we've had today to look into your word. I ask that you would impress it upon our hearts, that you would encourage us through it. I pray that as we face 
situations in our lives that may seem bleak, even as uh, ancient Israel did, that really this is just a testament to your power to save, to your grace, and to your mercy. And so I pray that if anyone here today is discouraged or wondering, uh, am I really going to make it? Is God really doing a work in my life? I pray that uh, your presence would be real today, that we would uh, sense your grace and kindness at work, and that you would be pleased to show and manifest your greatness and to encourage us to trust in you because only you can bring lasting peace. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.